0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators.
1: Who knows where this is going to end up?
2: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How you doing there? It is the podcast. It's David. You know the drill. We're explaining economics, I'm trying to make it a wee bit more popular, a little bit more comprehensible, and hopefully a little bit more relevant to all of your lives. I hope you've had a good week. I'm with your man. How are you doing, head? Very good. How are you? How was India? India was fantastic. Absolutely amazing country. I gave a couple of Talks at the Jaipur Literary Festival, which I've done before,
1: which is like the the Jaipur equivalent of Doki.
2: It's exactly it's the Indian equivalent of Doki
1: Book yeah, Festival. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, no, but it was it was really really interesting. I've always found going there just really eye opening for lots and lots of reasons. But then I travelled to Benares, yeah, uh, which is, is the oldest city that has been continuously lived in. They call it Varanasi. The, oh,
1: Varanasi, right. So sorry.
2: Benares is the old Indian name, and Varana, the old one, that they, they, they called it for years now. Varanasi is the one that's a bit like Mumbai and Bombay yes. and yeah, Calcutta yeah, yeah. And, and all that. And it was extraordinary. It was extra, It was like, do you ever remember the scene from Pulp Fiction? Uh, yeah. When the, the quote was, we're going to get all medieval on your ass. <laughs> do you remember <laughs> yeah, that one? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. It was medieval. It's It's on the Ganges. The Ganges is extraordinary when you see it yeah okay huge right down there they're burning corpses they're burning the funeral pyres are going it's extraordinary there's cows dead cows floating know, you,
1: you sent a text of that actually it's really
2: yeah. really mad and it's really spiritual i know i'm not a spiritual bloke right a person but i went down and i found something really quite visceral about it about seeing Life and death and progression and listen to the Hindus and what they believe. I was really, really, really taken by it and moved by the place. So this is the place that if you're a Hindu, if you die in Benares, you go straight to Nirvana. So you avoid... Don't pass go. You don't pass go. It's like Monopoly. <laughs> you also avoid the reincarnation. You don't come back as an ant, right? right? Or a bee or whatever you come back as, right? So you go straight through. So lots and lots and lots of Hindus will try and be cremated is the second best thing. Right. And dying yeah, in yeah. Benares, Be cremated. So there's 24-7, there are bodies coming in. The bodies are blessed. They're washed in the water, in the Ganges. And then they're put on this massive funeral pyre. And this is right on the water. And then, of course, the ashes are sprinkled in the sprinkled water. In. And this signifies that you're going to go straight to Nirvana. And it sounds strange for something like that to affect you, but it does, because they've been doing that for two and a half thousand years in exactly the same place. It's called a Ghat. Yeah. Which yeah. is the, the steps that go down into the river. And of course, you've got the holy man and you've got people bathing the Ganges, which is kind of weird when you've got dead cows Absolutely, going up Absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah. Is, and, it, is it smelly? I mean, I was in India years ago and there were, there were certain towns, certain cities, like in Madras, beautiful city, but really stank. It was Varanasi the same?
2: No, interestingly, that's one thing that struck me. I thought it was going to be rancid, yeah, and it's not. And maybe it's because of the Ganges and also, also, lots, there's lots and lots, there's lots and lots of scents and everything. But it's, yeah. it's a spiritual place and it's a religious place, and I was quite affected by it. I, I sound I, like you've yeah. gone all a bit spiritual. No, no, man, don't worry about that. Don't worry <laughs> about that. No, but seriously, it was very interesting. But India is extraordinary, and then I went to Delhi, and last Friday night it was an old Delhi man. Yeah, that would do your head in. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's too intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's far too intense. But it's funny. It was Friday and it was Brexit day. Yeah, and I left Old Delhi on the back of it in, in a tuk-tuk, right? And went up to Connaught Place or Connaught Place, as they say, and this is right. the centre in New Delhi of British rule. And I was thinking about Brexit through the context of you know, powerful countries have always measured their power by their ability to project their power beyond their own borders. So that's what power is. If you can project your power beyond your own borders. And I was sitting in New Delhi and I was looking around, all built by Indians, but under the British instruction. There was a time 100 years ago where they owned India Mm. and they projected their power all around the world. And you come back and you watch the Brexit stuff where their power is so diminished, where their standing is so diminished. And when their delusions of what they are so diminished. And I thought it was quite interesting sitting there in New Delhi, which was really emblematic of British power, and then watching the Brexit stuff. And did they have
1: a take on Brexit or they couldn't give a damn?
2: Indians can't stand the Brits. Yeah. They deeply, deeply... So it was Republic Day when I was there. So Republic Day is the 26th of January, Mm. and that's the day the Indians declared their republic, their freedom from the UK, which was 1948 was the the independence, and then 1950 was the republic after they got their constitution together. Interestingly, the only foreign leader invited by Nehru to celebrate the Indian Republic Day was who? De Valera? Exactly. Really? And De Valera in Birmingham. That's where they celebrated because the Brits wouldn't let them celebrate in London. So the Indians didn't invite any right. delegations, Mountbatten, anyone from the Brits, any from the old Indian High Commission, etc., the only person they invited was De Valera and he went. And the reason he went, because Nehru invited him, but the reason Nehru invited him, because Nehru in 1907 was here in Ireland, his brother was studying, and Nehru came and he wrote about the Sinn Fein movement back to his dad, said, This is a very interesting movie. Really? And of course, of course, De Valera and Nehru were contemporaries. Nehru was younger, yeah. they were contemporaries. And when Nehru got into Power in India, the invited devil air. Interesting
1: stuff. Very good. So he had a bit of a Shinners slant too. It a, well, well a, listen,
2: we're gonna be talking about the Shinners now, well, but a, I mean it yeah. was a
1: hell of a week though, when since you were away, you know, there was there was lots kind of stuff. Of course, you know, the coronavirus stuff and Brexit day. But I love the quote of your one, the president of the EU, Ursula, whatever her name Van is. Vanderlein. Vanderlane, saying when they're all standing up waving the Union Jacks take your flags down and go home. Did you say that? <laughs> it's quite a slap down. A brilliant well, you know, the funniest thing
2: about Brexit, we're not going to talk about this week, but just think about what's going to go, what's going to happen now. Two sets of trade negotiators are going to get in a room in the course of the next few months. And for the first time ever, they are going to negotiate not what tariffs they reduce, but what tariffs they increase. That has never happened before. Willingly. Wow. Think about the yeah. craziness of this. They're going to get in a room and they're going to negotiate increasing, not decreasing tariffs. Wow. Crazy stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, come here, let's get on with this because we're th- this week we're going to be talking about the election and we have an expert oh, yeah. well, to put it- us straight on what's happening, give us a real insight into... Into where this election is going to fall because it is—it's a bit crazy at the moment. The Shinners are coming up, and Fina Fall and Fianna, I have to say myself, I am totally lost. Well, our, I don't know where to. Do to, you
2: remember last 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 week or two weeks ago? Our central case. Remember the two drunks leaving the pub. Yeah,
1: exactly. Okay,
2: Fina Gael and Fina Fall propping each other up as they try to get over the line. I still think that could be this central case. But the great thing is, John, is that you and I are not experts on this, and certainly not. Certainly not. And uh, so we have acknowledged our vapidity on this issue and brought in a real expert, uh, Kevin Cunningham, who is a top-of-the-range statistician, top of his class in Oxford, Okay, but also a real expert on polling, on polling data, because what's interesting in Ireland now, as we go into the last few days, has been the surge in Sinn Féin, but also the collapse in Fine Gael. Yeah, And the fact that Fianna Fáil have remained more or less where they are. But the surge in Sinn Féin and the idea is, what does it mean? Can the polls be trusted because they haven't been accurate elsewhere? Yeah. And if Sinn Féin maintain this momentum going into the final week, what does it mean for the shape of politics in this country in the next four or five years?
3: We're delighted to announce... That on March 15, we're going to be coming back with a second live show. This one's going to be better. It's going to be more interactive. We've got a few ideas in the can. So grab the best seats in the house. We really look forward to seeing you there. March 15, it's going to be a great show. We're very excited
2: about it. We're, we're joined by Dr. Kevin out, <laughs> <Cunningham. laughs> Man, it's Dr. says No, but seriously, Kevin, listen, you're very, very welcome to the podcast. It's a great addition. It's great to have you here. Tell us... Before you started doing polling, running your own company, yeah, what were you
3: doing? How did you get into polling? A major recession. In 2009, lots of my buddies, we, we went over, we studied in Oxford and everyone who came in, uh, you know, they might have been coming from a major investment bank. There was no jobs around. Uh, obviously, I wasn't really into politics until that recession. Uh, so that incentivized my interest in politics. I started working a little bit in paddy power, uh, predicting the probability that a horse will fall in a given horse race, which is how did you? Okay, so tell me, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, it's I I, I mean, seriously, how do you do? Well, it's hard sums. I mean, really, that's that's essentially that's that's the guts of it, really. I I guess regression analysis was kind of the way that you do it. The idea was people wanted to bet. Without losing their money if their horse happened to fall, which was considered to be a relatively random event, so I don't know, I don't want to give the backbones to the to the thing, but I guess younger horses are more likely to fall than older horses who've been over the horse over the fences a few more times, and the trainers are more used to that sort of thing, I guess.
2: So then Paddy Parr would then give the odds which favored Paddy Parr.
3: Uh, yeah, they they adjust the odds. They what do they call it? They call it fallers insurance. I'm not sure if they still have it, but the, it's called fallers insurance. You get fallers insurance on any bet. You know, it's a slightly different price based on you know saying, look, I don't want my I know my horse is the best horse, but I think it could fall. Basically.
2: So how did you say? I love this carry on.
3: I love all this sort of stuff.
2: By the way, are Liverpool going to win the Premiership?
3: Uh, yes, I can guarantee <laughs> okay. a little bit of our own Okay. good This is a very, very
2: yeah. personal question. My team, Leeds United, are faltering. Uh, I, I
3: support Leeds as well, yeah. Okay, so now Another you know. One. I know, yeah. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah, let's, yeah, no, no. John, no, John no, off, we're, Okay,
2: well, hold on a second. Piss off, John. Now, Kevin, <laughs> what's <laughs> What's our odds?
3: So well, sometimes right when you look at uh, odds, because we lost progress, yesterday again. Yeah, I know, I know. I was I was going to try and make a general point about odds to the to the non Leeds fans. Listen, there's <laughs> actually three Leeds fans out there. <laughs> yeah, but the uh, the general point is what people. Typically, do is they use past behavior to predict future behavior. That's that's generally it. Sometimes you try and approach these things from a principles base. So, certain things have happened, and you use those principles and apply those principles onto the future, rather than saying, "Okay, this is exactly what happened in the past, and the future is going to be just like that."
2: So, given that Leeds are always top of the championship around Christmas, yes, and given that Leeds fall away uh,
3: in the last two or three years, yeah,
2: we suspect the
3: behaviour might repeat itself? That would be the assumption. But those two, there's only three samples. There's only a sample of three for that particular event, right? Where elites have actually but fallen away. as a away. fan,
2: three is enough.
3: Yeah, three is enough. And and look... Gives you enough hope. <laughs> not to bring this into elections, but often what you find is when people look at elections, they go, well, it hasn't happened in 15 years. And it's like, well, 15 years is four elections. So that's it's complete nonsense, you know, to look at these things in this very narrow paradigm. I guess.
2: So let's let's get on to your present position. You went from Paddy Power via PhD to the Labour Party in the UK to Leeds United. These are this is there's a there's a trend here of backing the wrong horse. Clearly,
3: oh but- uh, yeah yeah oh I, I you've no idea how many elections I've lost, literally. So okay, so there was the with the British Labour Party that that was an agonising thing, right? But also straight out of the back of that, I went and did a bit of work for the Australian Labor Party. I worked for the SDLP and then I worked for the Irish Labour Party as well. So a lot of Labour, but a lot of losses and a lot of watching the same thing happen again and again in election campaigns. Which was what? Okay, so I mean, this is a general point, which is slightly different, but centre left parties and left wing parties go into an election contest and focus on issues, okay? They treat the electorate as if they're kind of looking at a shopping list and trying to buy, and you're basically bidding on price. That's that's what they're trying to do, but that is absolutely not how voters behave. I mean, even in this, in the case of Sinn Fein right now, there's a lot of support behind Sinn Fein, but no one is mentioning their big promises. It's all an anti fianna anti anti-Finnegale thing. But we, we can come back to that. But so broadly do, speaking, so how do voters behave then? It's psychological. It's it's. I mean, the the one of the groups that have kind of made this more prominent is obviously Cambridge Analytica, which have had a lot of negativity associated with it. But Broadly speaking, it's, it's, it's about whether the government or the opposition is going to be perceived as more competent to address the challenges of the future, right? So whereas Leo, this probably isn't the best example now, given the context, but Leo Varadkar's performance in relation to Brexit, which is considered to be relatively good, helps him to say, look, I'm very good at other stuff, right? And the, in contrast, his performance in relation to the, his government's performance in relation to the National Children's Hospital overspend, the broadband overspend and lots of other domestic issues, which have started to gnaw away, basically sends a signal to the public that they're just not very good at managing the economy. Not to the same extent that they pretended they were, I guess. Right? So it's just this idea of voters get this general impression about parties, not a very specific, oh, Sinn Féin and Labour or whatever are going to say that they're going to do something and that's going to happen. Because broadly speaking, the voters know this stuff isn't going to happen. I mean, look at the last electoral cycle in Ireland. Fine Gael promised uh, cutting tax, basically, the USC. That was the main thing. Brexit happened and totally ran over that. But not just Brexit, housing crisis happened. So in every electoral cycle, something happens which undermines any potential promises. So really, the electorate are right in their approach to politics, in applying some scepticism, to the policies that are proposed by parties. And it's the left-wing parties that particularly focus on this kind of a bit for you and a bit for you and a bit for you. A lot of that started in the US, to be honest, with micro-targeting. And, what is uh, micro-targeting? Micro-targeting is the idea that I have a 18 to 24-year-old female and this is the vote that she's most interested in and we're going to push out promises in her direction on that particular issue. And you break up the electorate according to demographics, which are actually quite limited as an aside, to identify what things we can give each part, you know? And it's it's a load of nonsense, really.
2: So tell me, let's look at polling, right? Lots of people listening will say mm, it's a black art. It's been undermined dramatically by Trump, for example, where the polls never mm. really got to the pitch of it. Brexit, likewise. Even Boris Johnson last time out six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, just before the election in the UK. The polls were narrowing and yet Johnson wins hands down. Explain to me what has gone wrong with polling and explain to me what could go right with polling.
3: Okay, so there is one fundamental thing to get out of the way at the start of this, right? Which is the demographic thing. Okay, so when you're a public opinion polling company, you typically want to get the right proportion of people from all different age groups in particular, all different classes and all this sort of stuff. But there's one particular demographic which are basically under 30, that when you try and get them to respond to your polls, the only people that do respond to those are the really engaged types. So if I try and ring up an 18 to 30-year-old and try and ask them to chat about a whole range of issues about politics, because of the lack of life experience, they're not really as engaged, so they won't really respond. The types of people that do respond are typically centre left or left wing. So when you look at young people online, on Twitter or whatever, they tend to be very left wing, right? That's because they're the people that are engaging in politics. They're the people that will respond to a poll, say that they'll definitely vote. And Jesus, they're going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn or Ed Miliband or whoever it is. But or mean, Sinn Féin here. Or Sinn Féin or here. Or Labour Party here. Or, or Labour, people before profit whatever or whoever, Okay. Now, in 2014, with Professor Michael Marsh and Simon Hicks in the LSE, we did a study of the European elections, tried to understand and predict what was going to happen in the 2014 European elections. We found this consistent overestimate of the centre-left parties, the socialist and Democrat groupings, of around 4%. Now, if polls were randomly wrong, and we're just getting things a little bit wrong, that average error would actually fall to around zero or at least uh, close to it, right? But the fact that the error is is kind of averaging out as quite significantly different suggests that, that there was this significant and consistent issue with young people voting. So that's, that's this main problem that polling has had recently.
2: So explain, so that would therefore, in the American context, would pick up more people likely to vote for Hillary than Trump.
3: Yeah, absolutely. More
2: people likely to vote for Labour than Conservative. Yeah. More people likely to vote remain in the UK than Brexit, yeah. and in the Irish context, more people are likely to vote Sinn Féin than Fianna Fáil, is that what you're saying?
3: Fianna Fáil in particular. So if you look at the, re- even the referendums, which were massive wins for the kind of more liberal perspective, look at them closer, and if you look at the polls, the polls overestimate the yes vote every time. Even though they they're massive. Overestimated. Over, yeah, because the yes vote was like to liberalise abortion and same-sex marriage. Yeah. They always overestimate it. You don't notice in the big ones. You notice it in the really small ones, though, right? When it's 50-50, basically, and leave and remain in the UK. But it happens everywhere. It there's, there's quite a consistent theme here.
1: Sorry, Kevin. So you're saying that we overestimate the left-leaning
3: vote and underestimate the right-leaning? Yes, so... The older conservative bit is really is really interesting. Okay, so I've looked at exit polls in Ireland and polls in Ireland in general and I noticed a difference between the polls and the results in terms of one particular part of the demographic which is whether they attend church on a weekly basis or not, or not at all. And it's that particular group of people who are mass going who tend to be underestimated in polls. And they do tend to vote for Fianna Fáil. And Fianna Fáil in particular in Ireland, the Older, more conservative party, particularly after the crisis, because they kind of only retained voters that were particularly loyal to them. Those voters are underestimated basically in the polls by about 5% in in the general election, local elections, whatever it is.
2: And is this something we see all over the world? We see it in Canada, we see it in America, we see it in Britain, we see it in Australia. And I presume France and Germany as well.
3: Yeah, Australia's a, a slightly different point because they have mandatory voting, so it's a slightly different thing. In the election I was involved in there, it actually turned to be bang on and then the subsequent ones, it was a little bit out. And then there's the other thing, the pollsters do know this, and they update their polls as a result. In the UK, they've tended to recently, in recent elections, since they've kind of acknowledged this, they've tended to overestimate the Labour Party, then underestimate, then overestimate, then underestimate. Then underestimate. In the recent election, they got a bang on, but a lot of this is kind of minor adjustments around different things that they're doing. There are other aspects of this. I mean, first of all, in relation to Ireland, uh, the Sinn Féin surge is actually much bigger than that particular demographic group. But overall, when we look at polling and the quality of public opinion polling, our concerns aren't actually as dramatic as they should be. Uh, Will Jennings, uh, an academic in Southampton, did a publication which appeared in Nature, uh, which is basically the kind of the most preeminent academic journal you can do. They looked at all polls going back historically out of the back of this kind of concern about public opinion polls. And they found that on average, public opinion polls haven't got less accurate. Okay. What they did find is that the average error is 2%. The average error of a public opinion poll is 2%. Now people might think, well, what you hear when you hear a poll is the pollsters come out and say, well, we have a margin of error of plus or minus 3%. The average error of 2% means that basically 50% of the time they're within 2 and 50% time they're outside 2 So probably the same margin of error might be 4 or 5% effectively. So when you account for not just the randomness, the actual other parts of polling, the lack of response of of our mass goers and the more more enthusiasm of other types of people in in different electoral contexts. It's a a bigger margin of error. And that 5% or 4% is very important and gets a lot of attention, particularly in very marginal elections. Normally speaking, if I was to tell you, you know, 60% or 61% Sixty-one percent or seventy percent are in favour of something. You kind of say, right? Most people are in favour. You wouldn't really care. Obviously, in relation to Brexit, the difference of five percent is really, really important for people. in In this particular election, a difference of five percent for Sinn Fein or Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, or you know, it will make a huge difference. It'll make a huge difference. Yeah. So, in in politics, five percent is really important. And and obviously, to, to some extent, people are right to be kind of concerned with any differences, but. At the same time there are limits on what polls can actually do.
1: So Kevin, let me just ask you in the the world of polling and stuff, how has that changed as a result of social media? Has it given better insights or has it distorted the view?
3: I think in terms of polling, it 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 shows a bigger difference. So just focusing on Twitter just because that's that's the kind of main Uh, vehicle that we kind of tend to talk about in relation to this is that within Twitter, the proportion of the population that is kind of more liberal, more uh, part of the elite is relatively higher. I think in the recent British election study showed that it was approximately 65% of of those that use Twitter on a regular basis tend to be remainers as opposed to leavers. And then within that the Remainers tend to be people with a bit more, which who are higher, not just in the social strata in life, but actually within Twitter. They tend to be the more influential influencers, I guess, yeah, on there. Yeah. So they tend to distort what is read by journalists who tend to rightly use Twitter as a, a vehicle for understanding what's going on on a daily basis. Um, and I think that does distort it. It creates a bigger difference between what's going on in the real world and what's going on on Twitter. So you've got this cognitive dissonance, for example, where people, journalists in Ireland are probably wondering, what's going, how are Sinn Féin suddenly surging out of nowhere? Because the conversations on Twitter don't reflect conversations in the general public, which is very anti-Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, that's a combo. And that's just not what's going on on, on Twitter.
2: Can I ask you, Kevin, let's, let's focus now on what's going on in Ireland. Sinn Féin are having a proper surge. Yes. Fine Gael are having a proper collapse, it looks like. Yeah. What do you think is going on?
3: Okay, so it's not always... Someone asked me a similar question thinking, God, Sinn Féin can't be going up and Fine Gael going down. That seems bizarre. But actually, a lot of what's going on is clearly part people going between different parties. There's a certain amount of people going from Fine Gael to Fine Fáil. Certain people going from Fine Fáil to Sinn Féin certainly some people going from undecided in. And so there's a theory also that some people who are unsure between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are falling between those two cracks and ending up as undecided. They may come back and decide to vote for one of them. Uh, And a lot of undecided people are coming in and voting for Sinn Féin at the same time. But looking at the demographics in terms of the Sinn Féin vote, Uh, Their increase in support, So historically speaking Sinn Féin would be a party with a lot of support among young people and working class voters in particular. Uh, A lot of support in Dublin and in the northern region and northwest of Ireland. What's happened recently according to the recent Red Sea polls when you compare that with their poll back in September is that they've leveled that up everywhere. Uh, Not among the 55 plus but broadly speaking The rest of Leinster, which is sometimes referred to as the Rust Belt of Ireland, has increased significantly, that's increased 15 points for them. Munster has increased dramatically for Sinn Féin as well. The 35 to 55, which was the key voter in the so-called
2: slash acast
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: surge of the UK Labour Party's 2017 election that has also lifted and a lot of people uh, are identifying housing as the particular issue and within those age groups, it's the people that are renting that are massively going towards Sinn Féin. And and some of those people have actually voted for Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael in the past. Well, not Leo Radker, but have voted for Fine Gael in the past because they were new and fresh at one point and they were good in the economy. But now they're moving to Sinn Féin. And when you ask them why, it's nothing to do with policies. They will list one of two things primarily. One is... Change, new, different. The second thing is anti-Fenafol, anti-Fenigale. They've basically grouped the two parties together and said we want to change. We want a new way of looking at things.
1: These were the two struggling drunkards that you were talking about the other day.
2: Yes, indeed. Which is uh, most of the time you and me, but this time it doesn't happen to be. But I'm I'm fascinated by this. So, Kevin, what you're saying is, if you drill deep into the polls, the Sinn Fein surge is not a youth surge as we would define youth in the past, yeah. 18 to 25 or 18 to 30, it's actually 25 to 55. So it's a, it's a young-ish vote and it's not as class-based anymore.
3: Yeah, so their, their increase in vote, look, their increase in vote has been significant in 18 to 24. But to be honest, the 18 to 24 group isn't really that relevant in terms of the overall numbers. because Is it's that because small they don't group. come out or there's a small amount? Both. Small amount, they don't turn out. They're a useful group to separate from the rest, primarily because they actually are in college and they don't really engage in politics. So, and the 25 to 34 group actually has quite interesting differences from 18 to 24. And that's why we separate them. Not because they're equal in size groups, but actually, but because they're separated in these tables, they do get a lot more attention than they otherwise would. Uh, they're quite fickle voters. They're split between Sinn Fein and the Greens and any other new party emerging. But it's that thirty-five to fifty-five vote block in these polls that have lifted for them by thirteen, fourteen. And points. if you win
2: this, you win it. If you win the thirty-five to fifty-five, they vote. you win.
3: They do vote. That's 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 a key difference. I mean I don't want to get too carried away with Sinn Féin on the one hand because yeah okay Sinn Féin are you know in the lead but in the lead on 24%. If we went back in time and looked at Irish elections no party would win on 24%. In fact that would normally be a bad position for the, for the second place party as it were, Fine Gael. Normally they wouldn't be happy with 24. Now 24 is seemingly quite good I guess because the main party system has kind of fallen apart.
2: Uh, tell me explain to me again from the data the Fine Gael slump. What's going on there?
3: Okay, so the Fine Gael slump, I have to say, in relation to a lot of that, some people are going from Fine Gael to Fianna Fáil and some people are going from Fine Gael to Sinn Féin. What seems to underpin this, if you look at people, so we ask people not just why are they voting for the party they vote for, but why did they vote for the party that they used to vote for, separate the people that voted for Fine Gael and are now voting for a different party and see what their answers were. You know, so how do they look back on having voted for Fine in the previous election? And they sort of said back then, well they, well, they were doing well at the time, you know, and the economy was going well. So there is a complacency, I guess, around the economy that people might feel that they're freer to vote for a party of change in a time of increasing government. So this uh, is a fascinating uh,
2: point, that when the economy is doing well, the traditional analysis is always then we will vote for the people who are in power during that period. What you're saying is an actual fact. What happens is when the economy is doing well, you have permission to play around, to change your mind, to say, well, you know what, things are going well. Consequently, I might vote
3: somewhere else. The reason why people vote for the incumbent party when the economy is going well is because they perceive the incumbent to be competent. And that is one aspect which Finnegall have struggled with because of this prevailing emergence of incompetence around the economy, around public spending. About
2: about these specific projects which about have gone About the specific
3: off. projects, yeah. And that has really damaged them uh, significantly. There is another aspect to this as well, let's not forget, that we used to, we, I've done polling throughout this entire period and asked people what do they consider to be the most important issues. It's, it's not that they're voting on those issues, but it's the backdrop with which they're paying attention and scrutinising the quality of their government. The issues which have dominated have been health and housing and Brexit. Brexit was approximately 20% for this entire cycle since the Brexit issue has happened. Every time there was a crunch point around Brexit, Fine Gael lifted. So when Leo Vrancoe so-called stuck it to the Brits, I guess, around the time of the negotiation of the backstop in Theresa May, his party lifted immediately. Um, And it it did so twice, if not three times, in in that particular period. So Brexit has always been an issue around 20-25% of importance for people. Now, that's flopped. It's completely down. It's now at 5%. That's the big difference between what's happened since the deal has gone through and now.
2: So are you saying that, this is fascinating, that the perception of the importance of Brexit may actually be the reason that Fine Gael's fortunes have collapsed and Sinn Féin, who are actually focused on totally different issues, have
1: increased.
3: Yes, in, in in a sense, I would say that in terms of the first part, the relative support of Fine Gael and their ability to hold on their votes, the collapse of Brexit as an issue, as an important issue, has facilitated that. In relation to Sinn Féin, I think it's this different story. It's this it's this catalyst for change and this anti-Fianna among, I guess, people under the age of 50.
2: So basically Sinn Féin are, if you want change, vote for Sinn Féin.
3: Yeah. that's, that's Irrespective
2: of what that really is. It's more it's, of a feeling than an it's actual... It's more of a
3: feeling. And do you know what? There's, a, there's an interesting thing in electrocycles. I think we were talking about this at the start, but essentially the idea that promises. Often at the start of an electoral cycle, the government is usually performing relatively poorly because the focus is always on the negative things that the government has have failed to achieve over the course of the parliament. The governments tend to get better over the course of the campaign as the media starts to balance between here are your options, right? They start to scrutinise the opposition who start to often frequently in, like create a series of different promises which only serve to say to the public, We've got lots of money. And when the public know that there's lots of money, well, then they go to the party that's actually created the money. You know, it starts to reinforce the idea that, that's the, that the economy is going well. If I am an opposition party and say, look, we need to spend loads and loads of money on all these sorts of things. What typically happens is that people go back to the governing party. Now, we don't really know what's happening during this election campaign because our, our polling period is a week long. Like, so usually it takes a week for polls to happen and we're, we're in a three-week election campaign. In the UK, it's a five or six week and the polls are conducted over the course of one day because they're done online. So you can't necessarily see the effect of what's happening in campaigns. But from what I've seen in a lot of election campaigns, the promise of doing lots of things set against a government that's performing relatively well in the economy seems to undermine support for the opposition. And so almost the more you promise, the more emphasises the strength of the economy. So
2: this is what obviously Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue are hoping for the next couple of days, because it looks now, if the polls are right, and we've analysed how they can be wrong, how they can be right, but a surge like this for Fianna Fian- or for Sinn Féin, is not going away. They must hope that tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, people say, we we'll go back to what we know.
3: Yeah, they, it, it... Fine Gael are making the entire campaign. They're trying to make it, they tried to make it about Brexit and they're sort of doing little bits and pieces. I know Leo Vradker was on Andrew Marr on Sunday and he's trying to really emphasize that issue. So he's trying to bring up the salience of that issue. He's. They're also trying to focus on the economy. If we don't have an economy, we won't be able to spend this money, which just does generally work. To be honest, I often think in Irish politics, The most interesting party is Fianna Fáil because it doesn't exist in other countries. It's a complete outlier and they are electoral geniuses, right? So they generally, I know it's a strong thing to say, but I often used to speak to people in the British Labour Party saying, look at what these guys are like. They are stunningly good at elections and election campaigns. So Fianna Fáil have been in this really difficult position. They crashed, or at least were involved in crashing the economy, they uh, are now uh, not in opposition, but not in government. And you would normally think if you're not in opposition, then you have to defend the government. If you're, if you're not in government, then you would normally have some opportunity to kind of criticise what's being happened. So they actually can't do either. They also face this always existential thing of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, two cheeks of the same, you know. Um, Arse. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and uh, So this is this problem that they have. They have this other problem. So they they have this other issue in relation to Sinn Féin. So they have clearly noticed what happened in the 2015 UK general election when Ed Miliband found it really difficult to win in the context of the prospect of a coalition between Labour and the SNP. The SNP in Britain is very, very unpopular. And what happens in elections is... The parties only get a a certain amount of space to talk about their promises and a lot of the rest of the space is talking about the horse race, like what you and I are talking about right now. And when the horse race reflects on the potential coalition options, that can often be a negative thing. So in the 2015 general election in the UK, all the conversation was about Labour SNP going in coalition, which was just basically saying all the extra space that the parties weren't giving around their promises, which is all has to be timed by the media, is all about this really negative story. So Fianna Fáil, if you look at this election, the obvious thing is Fianna fail fein coalition. And it's the obvious thing that they can stick Fianna Fáil with. So Fianna Fáil faced this thing where they have to avoid going in with Sinn Féin while also try to present themselves as a catalyst for change, which is just really hard to do. But you say they're geniuses. Explain
2: to me, because I've always been amazed. We did a podcast the other week we were talking about something that you alerted me to, the the Norman versus the Gale surname and yeah. the deep, deep uh, idea of Fianna Fáil. What's always amazed me about Fianna Fáil is on the one hand, they can be the party of the victim, of the small man, yeah. the man without land, you know, historically. Yeah. On the other hand, they can be the party of the developer and the big banks, etc. They've managed always to occupy this very strange position that they can be Everything to everyone yeah is that unique to Ireland is that type
3: pretty of party? Much. there's only one other party that I could see that was very similar, which was the Christian Democratic Party in Italy under Androtti which was a catch-all party which ended up with the exact same situation of massive corruption, basically, so I guess if you're a party that doesn't really have no, either a social base or an ideological base. The politics, the internal politics of it is very, it involves a lot of patronage, basically. And that seems to be a dynamic, it's, it's Fianna Fáil's flaw. But coming to your question about why are they electoral geniuses? Well, they're the most successful political party ever, really, genuinely. If you look at their electoral performances, okay, they weren't in government every time, but they won every election from 1937 until 2011. And that's, an, that's completely unique. That is really, really unusual. And they do fill a gap. So when people in the UK look at a kind of a gap in the market, it's Fianna Fáil. Like it's absolutely Fianna Fáil. It's a slightly more socially conservative and slightly more economically left wing, which is basically the general public. It's not what the media are like, because if you, if you do a survey, I know DCU did a number of surveys of journalists, they typically find that journalists are the opposite. And the bubble in which the journalists are surrounded by tends to be the reverse of where Fianna Fáil's base is and the general public is. And it's this kind of missing gap in the in in the in the electoral landscape. The other reason why Fianna Fáil, I mean, I, I've watched Fianna Fáil for so long, and I often see what they do, and often they, Jesus, they've done they've nailed like the research. As I'm doing this research, I'm like, they're doing the exact thing that if I was a political party, that's exactly what I'd be doing right now. So one of the things that they've managed to do much better than any other party is uh, capture the local. So Irish elections are not just about the party, but also about the local candidates. And they've managed to be much more successful than any other party at being the local person that people rely and trust. You know, And that's really important.
1: Kevin, let me just jump in here. You know, after all of that, can you at this stage, can you make a, a prediction? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but
3: can you make a prediction? Okay, I I don't want to make a prediction, but I do want to say something, right? So normally, lots of people, lots of commentators pull out, I know there's a number of commentators have pulled out a series of different numbers of what they think is going to happen. They went constituency by constituency and said, well, that person's going to win there and that person's going to win. They identify the people that they think is going to win in any given constituency. This doesn't really work this way, okay? So when... Real statisticians look at these elections and, and try to predict how elections are going to happen. They use regression models and all that sort of stuff, but they use probability. So you try and estimate what's the likelihood of someone actually winning an election in a given context. So I want to just mention one example where in yeah. 1992, the Labour Party elected a guy called Dr. Mosaji Banji out of nowhere, right, in Clare. Okay, He's a Muslim from South Africa. In the election before that, Labour didn't even stand a candidate in the constituency. And the one before that, they only got 600 votes. Right. So looking at the recent elections is a very weak way of looking at this. You know, to understand what's going to happen with Sinn Féin and and Fianna Fáil, you have to look in the general sense of what's happening without going into the individual constituencies. So, if we were to take the last, the most recent polls, all the polls that have happened in this electoral cycle in, since the campaign has started, you'd have Fianna Fáil on 26%, Fine Gael on 21, Sinn Fein on 21, I'll save you the decimal places, the Green Party on 8, Labour on 5. That would give a parliament of 48 for Fianna Fáil, 37 for Fine Gael, 36 for Sinn Fein, 11 for the Greens, 6 for Labour. Wow. So that would be broadly where that would land. Now there's lots of other issues with this. There's transfers, there's a trend, there's all sorts of different things going on. Some parties are more likely to get votes and do better than than this would am- yeah. than, than this would suggest. Historically speaking the Green Party are very good at getting transfers and typically overperform relative to the proportion of votes they get. And um, so that that's basically where it'd end up. So so I don't want to say saying, that's so, a you're saying, but. so you're
2: saying, well, let's, 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 let the, you know, the Dave McWilliams podcast uh, <laughs> is going out here with a picture. So you're saying 48 for Fianna Fáil, 37 for Fianna Gael, 36 for Sinn Féin. Yeah, that's now, basically... just imagine that's what we end up with next week.
3: Yeah, so you need a parliament of 80. So you need a government... 80 is the magic number, right? So we have a lot of independence. So... In order to get to 80, you're talking about Fianna Fáil plus Sinn Féin plus the Greens, probably, or plus Sinn Féin plus the Social Democrats, you get to it. So the obvious solution is a coalition between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. I mean, that, that, that that's where the numbers are. Or Fianna
2: Fáil and Fine Gael.
3: Or the grand coalition, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Now, I cannot see either of them go. It's 16 to 1 in the bookies, if you would like to go down. But uh, I cannot see it happening because... It's electoral suicide for one of them. Now it has happened previously. I know Portugal, they did this before, but basically overnight the combined party just shrinks, you know? So it would be very dangerous for either of those two parties going on as a minority. Just to importantly, and hopefully, you know, this I really can't get, uh, make sure that this doesn't get edited out, but importantly, that, that is just basically on on historical based on what's happened historically in relation to the relationship between seats and votes in this country. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's Sorry, not Kevin, my.
2: Have you've, you've shown your Mickey. It's, You're not, gone my, now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's not my uh, prediction at all. And look, there's a trend and loads of other excuses that I just can't. Uh, <laughs> now that you've you, you've predicted a Fena
2: Fall Fein coalition, no. But what is interesting is the extent to which the data, the polling, is actually quite accurate, but only when it gets very tight, like between. Hillary and Trump, when it came down to 2 or 3%, the actual margin of error made a huge difference. Yeah. Whereas here...
3: Well, five points would make a huge difference. If, say, Fianna Fáil were five points higher, they'd be on 31%. That's another 10, 15 seats. You know? So
2: they don't have to do business with people they don't want to after that.
3: Well, they'd still have to go in with Sinn Féin, I guess, yeah. I mean, if they ha- oh, the, the other alternative, just to suggest, which I think is probably the most reasonable alternative because I know uh, when following the debates quite closely, Micheál Martin was asked, would you go into government with Sinn Féin? They said no. And then the camera went away and you could see him smiling because there's an alternative possibility where he goes into government and Sinn Féin maintains the confidence and supply arrangement that he has provided for uh, Fine Gael.
2: Okay, so it's like a shadow Sinn Féin government. So
3: they could do that, yeah. Yeah, shadowy in the background. They love it.
2: well uh, John it's really nice to have somebody in the room who actually knows what they're talking about absolutely
1: it's a novel experience I was just about to say that
2: (laughs) yeah no no very interesting stuff and you know so what do you make of that well the interesting thing is John is we are now three days before a significant election yeah it looks like the tectonic plates could shift in this country it looks like Sinn Féin could be within shouting distance of power. In fact, if they keep the momentum up until Saturday, they could actually be in a stronger position. Now, what that means for the society is extraordinary because, number one, it's got huge implications for Northern Ireland or massive implications for the next five or six years with respect to Northern Ireland. You come back here, you see what will it do to politics here? If Kevin is right, if they are the catalyst for change, then there could be some really positive things because we know that to fix the housing market, you have to aggressively change Mm. the land game here. If they do that, it could be really, really positive. If, on the other hand, Sinn Féin go against the basic idea of creating jobs... An entrepreneurial society, a society that takes risks. Mm. If they start overburdening by taxation, people who are actually going out and taking a risk, then I think we could have a problem. And the thing is, the problem. What's really not, you know, that the coronavirus is happening now. I say there's something going on in Ireland called the bonanza virus. So a bonanza (laughs) in the Oxford English Dictionary is a moment where wealth and profits arrive out of nowhere. right? Right. So things have to be happening. So the coronavirus is obviously very, very uh, uh, contagious. The bonanza virus affects Irish politicians ahead of elections, right? (laughs) And they start to promise things to each other, right? And a bit like the coronavirus, it jumps from people to people, right? And there's no known antidote. We know with Irish politicians that one guy or girl promises X, then the other one will promise X. Free houses, free health, free this, free that, free that. Loads of pensions, loads of childcare, all that stuff that's going on, right? And it kind of, it is like a virus. Yeah, yeah. And I I think uh, apparently doctors say the proximity to a television camera seems to amplify the transmission of the bonanza virus between politician to politician. It kind of scares me that we get into an auction like this because it is a sort of a psychosis that happens that suddenly a parallel universe emerges in the politicians' heads where everything is possible. So politicians who've never seen a motorway bar driving on it suddenly become project managers in infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So the upside is that a change is always good. Change is always good, yeah. And change is reality. And life is about change. And you move and you move. It's the only constant in life is change. It's the only constant. And there's no such thing as equilibrium in economics. You know, I've always always said the economy is never inert or restless or at peace. It's always changing. Back to our friend Schumpeter. Yeah. So this is Schumterian politics. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's the same idea. Yeah, I get that. The downside is in a small open economy, if you inflate the economy through massive public spending at the end of a long cycle, when your rate of unemployment is lower than it's ever been before, when you know that the economy supply, if you look at traffic, if you yeah. look at house prices, is already contracted. What happens is all the good intentions dissipate in inflation. So the price of everything goes up because the demand is so huge. And in a small open economy, when you have inflation, what happens is the cost of everything rises, which is inflation, mm. and the profits in domestic business falls because domestic business largely trades in the economy. Okay. If domestic business profits falls, domestic businesses in Ireland employ 70% of people here. The rest is 15% more or less in the public sector, 15% more or less in the multinationals, and 70% in small businesses. If we are in a situation where electoral promises drive up inflation, rather than deliver this great social housing, better infrastructure, etc., then profits in the local domestic sector fall. As profits in the local domestic sector fall, what you get is what we call a recession. Now, in most countries, when this happens, the exchange rate falls. So, for example, inflation goes up, the exchange rate falls, that allows us to trade. But we're in the European monetary system, we're in the euro, we don't have our own exchange rate. In other countries, when inflation rises, the interest rate rises to compress things, we don't have our own interest rate. So I think we're more vulnerable to auction politics than people actually appreciate. And interestingly...
1: Sorry, in this particular election?
2: Yeah, in this particular jurisdiction. yeah, Because we're very, very small. So the economy is quite fragile. The ecosystem is fragile. If you change this dramatically by ramping up public spending too much and increasing taxes too much, you strangle the local domestic industry. Now, we have on the podcast talked about, you know, you need local entrepreneurs, risk-takers, to make the economy tick. If they are knocked off their perch by these promises, we could be in a situation where we have an unnecessary recession brought forward by too much public spending, which will be ushered in by a massive change in politics in the next week. If that were to happen, it could be very, very negative. However, there's a very, very good chance... Something like Sinn Fein and the surge in Sinn Fein might not necessarily lead to their own power, but shakes the other parties into change. I'd just like to say one last thing, which is the upside of Sinn Fein is the following. I think that Fine Gael and Fina Fall and the Labour Party, having been in power in this country over the last 70 years, are far too close to the civil service. They have far too much respect for the civil service, the top of the civil service. Yeah. And I've always felt the Mandarins run this country, right? Yeah. What Sinn Féin could do, if they're in a minority with Fianna Fáil, is they could shake up the way this country is governed because they don't respect and have this fawning attitude towards the heads of the civil service. If that happened, it would be a good thing. I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters and to help support the content and perhaps more importantly to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams